Hello, and thank you for listening to the Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal podcast. The Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal is co-sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators and the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics. My name is Eva Thanheiser, and today I'm talking with Gwyneth Hughes, Michelle Carney, Joe Champion, and Lindsay Yunt, all from or around Boise State University. We will be discussing the article Building Mathematics Professional Development with an Explicit Attention to Concepts and Student Opportunities to Struggle Framework, published in the February 2023 issue of the Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal. We will begin by summarizing the main points of the article and discuss in more depth the lessons they shared, their successes and challenges, and how these lessons relate to their other work. Could you all take a minute to introduce yourselves? I'm Gwyneth Hughes. I'm currently a seventh grade math teacher in Madison, Wisconsin. I was formerly a regional math specialist through Boise State, and I was also a math specialist at UW-Madison. And I'm Michelle Carney. I'm a professor at Boise State, and I work on several of these grant projects that we talk about in the article that all involve teacher professional development. I'm Joe Champion. I'm a math professor at Boise State University. I'm very fortunate to get to collaborate with Michelle and Lindsay and Gwen and others on quite a bit of professional development projects. Very excited to talk with you today. My name is Lindsay Yunt, and I used to work full-time at Boise State in the STEM education program and then in the Regional Math Center also. Just blessed to work with these amazing people on all of the research projects and grant projects that we've got going on. You guys just make it sound like we all should be there and work with all of you. <laughs> it's a very fun group. It's a, it's a large fun group. That yeah. sounds awesome. All right, let's get started with just a brief summary of the article. In essence, we led a lot of professional development through Boise State University at many different scales and with different groups around different kinds of math content. And in thinking about how to give some clarity and coherence to that work, we wanted an underlying framework that teachers can connect to in, in looking at our work and that would also help us plan our professional development. And so we used research and our own experiences to develop this underlying framework for professional development that's based in explicit attention to concepts and student opportunities to struggle. Okay, and who did you write this article for? Our primary audience was other mathematics teacher educators, both pre-service and in-service, and then also district people that do mathematics professional development work and coaches. Math teacher leaders generally are is the primary audience, anyone who's leading math professional development with teachers. What we had in our minds was the different trade-offs and uses of values that, that professional developers have to bring to their work in terms of foregrounding some aspects of, you know, mathematics instruction and learning and backgrounding other things. And I think we just wanted to kind of share how we've come up with what we think is a relatively well-articulated and cohesive set of principles that can span lots of different types of projects. Is cool. I'm excited to learn more about it. So what got you started on this? So I'm going to read the question. What is the important problem of or problem of practice or issue that your article addresses? For all of us having attended professional development as teachers or led professional development, we know that having 
sort of a key set of ideas to hang the the experience on is really important. And so having something simple and but also expansive enough that it it can capture a lot of different ideas was really important to us. And I think in different settings, we've had different structures or different frameworks that we've used to organize professional development around, but we wanted to have something more overarching that would be useful also to other people that we know teachers will come away with fundamentally when they leave our professional development. So let me try to follow up. So was the problem that people, teachers and teacher leaders attend PDs and they're all over the place and um, you were trying to get something to have it be more centered or organized? Yeah, we want, you know, we don't want, because we offer PD in so many different places and through different projects, we didn't want those to feel like disconnected opportunities for people. So we wanted, we use this framework as something that helps to connect across our different projects that we do. So a teacher may take a class from us three years ago and then come back and be part of a grant project three years later. And we want this, we use this framework to help connect across our different opportunities. And it, because it's expansive in that we can, you can fit a lot of things under it and keep kind of connecting to those two central ideas. Okay. I'll just really quickly jump in and say, I think, a lot of professional development ends up wasting quite a bit of time in terms of explaining the vocabulary, the principles, the goals, and teachers can pick up on that, that idea that we're spending all of this front-loading time talking about what is the terminology here, what are the different words that we need to use, and the jargon that has to be adopted in order to do this work. So I think that's partly what we were trying to do was to simplify some of the communication in ways that teachers would experience as reasonable too. And it seems like because you all were at least at that point in the same area, that it was the same teachers kind of going through the different opportunities. And so it was more coherence across opportunities within and across. Is that fair to say? Definitely. Yes, definitely a big trying to make coherence across those opportunities. And we, yeah, we do serve across the two regions of the state that we serve roughly 6,000 teachers, I think. We don't always get repeat customers, but we do get a lot of repeat people. (laughs) Our next question is kind of, how does this build on the work in the field already? What particular theories are you drawing on? And then the following question is, tell us more about the innovation. And I think for you guys, they are really linked. So why don't I ask them both together? So what do you build on and what is the framework? The initial ideas came from a Hebert and Groves article that we cite right away in the, the paper. So I want to give them credit where they did a big meta study of what is effective in teaching to ensure that students learn, basically. and. These two ideas of opportunity to struggle, explicit attention to concepts, were really key in getting students to have that deep conceptual understanding of mathematics. They also talk about procedural fluency, but we know from teachers that that procedural fluency tends to be an easier thing to tackle. And it's really that conceptual understanding that can be challenging. So that Hebert and Rose meta-analysis helped us kind of hone in on those two ideas as the underlying concepts that we wanted to highlight in our in our framework. 
And then Stein et al. followed up with research about the specific effectiveness of those two constructs within improving student student performance and academic performance on different assessments, so that there was some real research grounding in the effectiveness of of those ideas. And so I'm just going to follow up here. When you talk about effectiveness, that is measured by standardized test scores, or what does it mean to be effective? Yeah, there are a lot of different ways to operationalize that. A lot of times in the literature, these do come down to sort of standardized assessments that are given sort of pre and post or observational studies, larger scale student achievement. The sign it all, for example, was using, I think, test scores in Tennessee students' test scores in Tennessee. That said, as we know, math education takes a pretty broad perspective on what it means to be an effective teacher. And this sort of focuses on the student learning that can be picked up on assessments, which we know in the teachers and the districts that we work with is one of the highest priorities. It's not necessarily the only priority, but it's one priority that can kind of serve as as a grounding for, for professional development. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that we are clear on what we're talking about since the field is all over the place right now with what <laughs> and how we define things. It's good to just be clear that the goal is to follow the path that the schools have laid out with the standardized test scores so that students perform better. We also, we have a lot of our projects are state funded also, so that is their target for us also. But I think as a group, we also, students' beliefs in themselves, their interests, those those are big factors which we're also focusing on as a group and how do we make sure that the instruction we're supporting teachers in is is contributing to that aspect of of student achievement also. Okay. So tell us a little bit about the framework. So the framework consists of these two concepts, right? Tell us about each of them, how they're grounded in the literature. And then the question here is, you know, what is your innovation? Tell us a little bit more about that. And so I think just understanding that framework better would be useful. The explicit attention to concepts, we have identified three features, starting with the Hebert and Groves article, that we think really are the major areas to focus on when you're thinking about explicit attention to concepts. So those are that the focus is on concepts, math concepts, and that those concepts are being made explicit and public during instruction. And that the emphasis is on making connections between different, often different types of representations, different ways of thinking about things. And so the big thing is that in order for that construct of explicit attention to concepts to be present, all three of those features have to be present in the classroom in order for that construct to kind of come alive. I'm also remembering that you have some really cool visuals in the article if somebody wants to download those. But you were saying making the concepts explicit, connecting between different ways of thinking. And then what was the third one? 
that the focus is on a con- a, like an actual math concept. And could you give us an example so we could wrap our heads around what that might mean? Thinking about like maybe fraction instruction in third grade and you're thinking about like a unit fraction and what the, the concept of a unit fraction and having kids understand that and what does iterating that unit fraction mean. And so that it's it's not about the procedural things that you're doing, but the, the concept of a unit fraction and, and then what does that look like visually and how can you emphasize connections across that and making sure that that's kind of an explicit and public conversation that's happening in the classroom. And when you say making it explicit, what does that mean? Does that mean that teachers tells the students we're talking about unit fractions today or? I'd say that's the a starting point maybe is, is to emphasize that idea. But the you want to make what is the concept of a unit fraction explicit, right? So it's not just that we're, you know, it's not the idea of writing the objective on the board and saying we're discussing unit fractions today. It goes much deeper than that, that we're providing oftentimes some sort of a visual to support students, you know, developing what the concept means, connecting that visual to other visuals or to the kind of maybe procedural manipulation that might go along with it, but that we're pressing all those connections and doing all of that very publicly in the classroom. Yeah, a good example with that is if there are, say, two different representations of different kinds of fractions that the students are dealing with in a lesson, the teacher sort of keeps coming back to, okay, we're looking at two-thirds. Can we see what the unit fraction is in this example? And how about over here with this representation, we have three-fifths. What is the unit fraction? How can you tell? Why do we know that the five is sort of shown in the problem as the kind of thing that gets iterated, the fifths, sorry. So yeah, that's the idea, sort of coming back over and over to that. I think sometimes vocabulary becomes important there. We've had teachers sometimes interpret the word explicit as direct instruction, that they need to sort of take some time to just tell the students what the math is and how it works and to lecture or give a brief explanation or something like that. And we sort of acknowledge that that's maybe one way to make sure that things are explicit, but that you can also make the ideas really foregrounded and explicit without doing a lot of direct instruction. Okay, sorry, I cut you off there after the first half. So let's get into the second half. I can address the student opportunity to struggle like Michelle was highlighting for explicit attention to concepts, we want to make sure that there's a focus on these three different pieces that are also in that same diagram. So like focusing on sense-making, so students interacting with a concept and like Joe said, maybe highlighting concepts through their own vocabulary and noticing that students are applying sustained mental effort so that cognitive load isn't taken away from the students that they are really interacting with the material. And the students are getting an opportunity to engage with important math. So this is a way to connect to students' lives, to have them think about how mathematics is used in the real world. And that's a way to have them to connect to the mathematics and build their their own self-efficacy. So that's the student opportunity to struggle piece. And I think that's where we can connect to issues of like equity and access and those pieces. I was just going to point out, like, it sounded like that last piece that you mentioned in the student's opportunity struggle was like connected to how do you use this in the real world? How is that a piece of struggle? So I think in one of the ways we introduce mathematics concepts is by giving students a a context that they are somewhat familiar with and have interaction with. So that could be something like 
chocolate milk that could be like mixing up chocolate milk, or that could be something like splitting up sandwiches equally. So those are like very contextual real life things, or it could be something as sort of like locally political, I guess, as water quality and how we're going to address the fact that our school doesn't have access to clean water right now. So those are all contexts that students can can interact with to introduce a problem. I think the that component of our framework that says you, that we want the students to be engaging with important math is trying to highlight the fact that we have limited time in the classroom and what we think about matters. And when students have the opportunity to think about math and how it connects to the social issues that are important to them or, or the context that, that really resonate with their lived experiences, that that creates increased motivation to sort of persist and keep trying to understand things and make sense of math concepts in addition to the context that, that go with it. So, okay, I think I'm understanding now why it's in the struggle piece because it's the it keeps them motivated to work through. Thank you. I was trying to make that connection of what yeah. that in there. So now let's move on. I think we're understanding that there's this framework that kind of guides your PDs, it has two pieces with three under each of them. So really there's six components. So now let's kind of get into when you wrote your article, what research questions did you study to document the effectiveness of this framework? We were really looking for how when we tried to implement the framework, the concepts and the constructs and the different strategies that go with it in terms of teaching, how they resonated with teachers and whether or not the teachers sort of interpreted them as making sense in their own context and in their practice, and whether or not they could then translate that into their practice. And these different projects went into that second aspect of things, the sort of translating into practice in different levels of depth. And that's something that we shared in the article about. So we went everywhere from, you know, just a simple survey about whether or not the teachers could interpret what they were reading and it made sense to them down to changes in student achievement as measured by pre-post assessments. Okay. Yeah. You guys give like three detailed examples in the article, right? That's one of the the things that is nice about your work. It's about these connecting to overarching all of these different experiences, but then also makes it kind of like huge to think through, right? Because you have to think through all the different pieces. I think one of the things we were looking for is do these, does the explicit attention to concepts and student opportunity to struggle, do those two ideas come up organically in teachers' responses to the the work that they're doing. So I think that that organic piece was really important to us. Is that something that they are independently taking away from the the opportunities? Okay, so let me see if I'm following and I might not be, so then correct me. So when you are creating these professional developments, these two things drive how you're creating them. But you may be not explicit about that those two drive how you're creating them with the teachers, or are you? You are explicit. Yeah, I think there's two levels that happens. One is we actually use these two constructs to think about how we structure our professional development with teachers, making sure that these ideas, and we call them EAC and SOS, you know, we abbreviate them, that we embed those 
ways of thinking about learning in our PD opportunities for teachers, but then we're also very explicit about that framework with teachers and their use of it with students in their classrooms. So it's it's kind of two levels, which is a, was a lot to put into the article. <laughs> and so then when you say you're looking at whether that comes up organically, is the idea, so you're being really explicit and now you're trying to figure out have they heard what you were saying? Is that kind of... Okay. Yeah, is that something that is coming up as something they can include in their own practice? Are they seeing these ideas as relevant to their own experience as they reflect? And are they? Yeah. So one of the examples from the article, like the lesson study example was, I think we had an explicit question about one of them, but then those ideas um, came up very organically in their responses, their reflections upon that lesson study process. They talked about it very frequently and their use of it in their classroom following lesson study was, was a big takeaway for them. Okay. So what about the, so you have three PDs that you describe, right? That's one of them. What about the other two? I'm going to address the first one that's for the statewide course. So we incorporated this framework into the statewide course starting a few years ago. And in their reflections that they're writing each week or saying to each other, we started to see them using that vocabulary, opportunity to struggle or attention to concepts as they were writing. And so there's an example in the paper of where we very intentionally asked them to talk about explicit attention to concepts, but then teachers were taking that steps further and saying how I can use this in my own classroom and also getting into that opportunity to struggle. So they're, they were going above and beyond the, the basic requirements of the prompt. And I'll share a little bit about the third example in the paper, which is Researching Order of Teaching Project, which is a National Science Foundation-sponsored classroom-based research project. So we worked with 100 middle school teachers, and Lindsay Yunt, one of our co-authors, did a lot of the direct work with teachers in their classrooms on this sort of thing. We worked with teachers to have them select strategies that are derived from the research regarding EAC or SOS. And the these are included in the article. One of them, for example, we labeled it EAC1, which is where the teacher tries to specifically connect to more than one representation of an idea. So we presented in that project eight different strategies, four for EAC and four for SOS. And we asked the teachers to select one and really try to implement it in their classroom in a way that we could assess whether or not student learning was affected by it. So they would set up a little research study where the in some of their classes, they would use regular instruction and in their other classes, they would use the selected strategy and then assess student learning in a kind of head-to-head -head way in those two different methods of instruction. And so that project really, we really hung this framework right in the center of that project. So the teachers were really learning about EAC and SOS in a very specific way that would, and trying to adapt it for their instruction. And you found... Lindsay, what did we find? First, we found that implementing new teaching strategies in line with the AC and SOS was pretty challenging, and it required a lot of practice, a lot of time, but prompted some pretty beautiful reflections from our in-service teachers, uh, just how the students reacted, when we provided time and opportunities for them to engage with something that mattered, how the energy in the room changed, how the conversations changed, how student work became the center of discussions. And so that, that was kind of a 
a fun thing to be able to watch in the classrooms with the kids and with the teachers. But we also found that the more they practice, the more they learn, the more simple their work was. I heard so many teachers were like, okay, I just, I just need to do these two things. I need to make sure kids have opportunities to struggle. And I need to make sure that I provide some attention to concepts and the way that they designed their whole group discussions, for example. While it was a lot at first for teachers to really learn deeply what these two constructs were, it actually became very simple to align instructional design to them. That was really neat. We became very fluent EAC and SOS speakers across the project, and it kind of caught on like wildfire in their departments and in their buildings. A lot of our teachers got so fired up about the work that they were doing and the learning they were doing and its impact on their own instruction that they took it to their PLC teams, to their grade level teams, to their departments, and just started sharing, sharing the news, sharing the framework. And now we've got lots and lots of people outside of our projects work using this framework to design their own instruction, which goes back to the original intent of our work. We do a lot of professional development at Boise State for in-service math teachers, a lot. And so when those people that have heard about this thing come to us for something new, the message is the same. The work is the same. We are grounded in these two constructs and these two pieces of our instruction. So it's been a really nice conversation anchor and PD anchor across all of our projects. Thing I That's, wanted to share. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was going to say one thing I wanted to share for the broader group of math teacher educators is of the two constructs, I think EAC, the idea of being really explicit about concepts is more of an entry point for a greater group of teachers, especially like early career teachers, teachers who are really have really bought into the more traditional direct instruction models. They see something in their own practice that connects well with EAC. And we think of that's a really nice kind of appetizer <laughs> in working with teachers, something that's sort of easy for them to connect with their own practice. And then when we ask them to, well, now that you've tried out a specific strategy with EAC, for example, why don't you go ahead and try out one that focuses more on SOS that can bring people a little out of their comfort zones. But we've also built a little bit of trust there and, and acknowledgement that there are multiple different ways of teaching and that they all have value. So let me ask you a meta question, because it sounds to me like there's this level of, there's a framework, there's two pieces to the framework. Each of them has some sub pieces. This should guide everything. That's a contribution that you're making, but it could be, it doesn't really matter what the pieces are, but then it could be, okay, we decided on these two and it actually really does matter what these two are. So where are we at with this? Is it like, that we just needed to be coherent? Or maybe you could talk a little bit more why you picked those two, right? Because those two are specific ones. Could we replace them by other two and would we get similar results? And that might be too big, too hard of a question, but I, I was kind of trying to figure out, is part of the message coherence around anything or is it coherence around these two things? I see it as as, as both of those things that you talked about. For us, using those two constructs works really well across the different projects that we have and the audiences we have and the stakeholders that we need to serve. So for us, they work particularly well. And you can all, we do a ton of other stuff, right? We do learning 
progressions and trajectories. We do we do all kinds of different things in the math and literature that we embed within our work, and they all seem to work well for us under those two constructs. We can kind of tie everything together really nicely under those. So we think they probably would work well for others, but we also think just the idea of having a coherent framework generally has been super important. And, and I don't know that everybody has to adopt the one that we you know, have been using that came from that that work from Hebert and Gross. But we it has worked well for us. So if others want to use it, great. But I also think that if others have something else that works well for them, the idea of just having a coherent framework with which to attach your PD2 is a really, really big important thing because that as someone who used to be a district math coordinator and a district math coach and a math teacher, the lack of coherence across PD things is rather frustrating. And so to have something cohesive, whether it's, you know, this particular one or something else, to me, that's the the really big piece. Yeah, that makes sense. And Lindsay, I did want to follow up earlier in, in a response, you shared how you could feel the energy shifting in a room. I was kind of curious if you could describe that a little bit more, because I've had that experience too, and I'm trying to figure out how do we measure these things and what is that like? So could you say a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I worked with several teachers where their one of their goals was to try and foreground a lesson with an opportunity to struggle and then follow that up with explicit attention to concepts as an example. And so they'd put a rich problem, a problem that mattered, a problem that was important to kids in front of them and ask them, you know, like, can we decode this problem? What's the problem here? What are the, what's the context here? Can we visualize this? Can we draw a picture of it mathematically? How do we use mathematics to bring this problem into something that we can solve? And then the kids would work in groups and have ideas and have energy and decide what, how they were going to draw this and, and how they were going to describe what they're talking about and how they would convince somebody that their answer is right. And then the teacher would take a, a nice collection of that work, make that very public and do some similarities and differencing, some noticing, some different pieces where the students, again, all got to focus on that student thinking. And it was our work and our ways. And oh, what they did over here, I mean, multiple times, what that kid did, we did that too. It just looks different. And so, I mean, there's just a lot, a lot of student energy involved in their thinking and their work being the center of everything. And for a lot of teachers, that required them letting go of control. Other teachers decided that the order that they liked to kind of incorporate these two things in their practice was to do explicit attention to concepts first and then allow students to struggle on a new problem. And that worked really well also. So the teachers could still maintain some control. They could set the stage for the work that students were going to be doing. They could help students see the things that we wanted them to see early. And then the students were discovering those again in a new problem and saying things like, oh, this is just like the other one that we did. So it was it's just neat. It's neat. The teacher kind of steps into a new role when they work to incorporate these two constructs in their instruction. They take on a new role. It sounds to me a lot like student opportunity to struggle is very similar to student thinking is leading the class discussion, right? Because you're making it public, people are engaging with it. And so 
it seems like there's a lot of things or there could be a lot of things in the student opportunities to struggle where if one just literally reads that, that could sound very different. I think my favorite feature of that particular construct is this focus on sense-making. So just asking students, what's in this problem? What's Why is this even a problem? What is it that we need to find out? And how does math help us do that? That's a very neat thing to see kids engage in. Yeah, and it does kind of touch on some of those other things that are important in math education about student agency and the sense of in the classroom sort of where the power dynamic is and what the point of all of this is. All those things sort of get mixed in, which is, I think, one of the reasons why it's sometimes initially perceived as kind of threatening to teachers' regular practice when they see these ideas about the students thinking and their communication being the sort of center of things, it seems like a big lift for a lot of teachers to make a change in that direction. So it may be the more challenging one, but also the more rewarding aspect of instruction that can still be really effective. So I'm going to wrap up with our last question, which is what new contributions are you making to our field? Or how does your article inform or influence math teacher education? Real briefly, we've got a table in the article that describes some potential uses for our constructs in different settings for math teacher educators. So if you're teaching a math methods class to undergraduates, you can think about using this in the, as you teach folks about lesson planning or unit planning, PLCs, as well as classroom-based research, workshops, things like that. That's one possible takeaway that we sort of hoped for in the field. The other thing that from my personal point of view, I think math teacher educators sometimes really struggle with communicating research in ways that make sense to teachers. And we hope that this framework and this article can serve as a kind of template for how you can improve the, your sort of communication across that divide. Yeah, as I was listening, um, reading and listening, I was thinking actually to myself, what a cool tool this is to communicate some of the ideas I have with teachers in a much more clear way, potentially. So thank you for that. I was just going to add, I think the other contribution is like, rather than creating something entirely new, I think what this does is actually pull together a lot of different elements within the method literature into something that's kind of cohesive and easy to translate. An area I'm interested in as a teacher in a classroom now is thinking about studying or understanding how that opportunity to struggle looks in classrooms where there are students struggling for reasons that have nothing to do with the specific mathematics. So when students are already struggling to be, for example, in the classroom or with not enough supports for a specific disability or something like that, how do we scaffold struggle so that that important piece is still present, but students still have access and want to be in that math classroom. So that's a direction I'm I'm really interested in. So let me see, and I, w- I want to be careful to rephrase what you said. It seems like you're distinguishing between worthwhile struggle and unnecessary struggle. Is that fair? Or worthwhile mathematical struggle and just barriers. Okay. Barriers to access. Yeah, one of our members of our research group, Angie Crawford, really focuses on the 
the work with students who experience difficulties in math classes and how teachers can still enact these two different kinds of constructs in ways that also acknowledge all the other opportunities that students can have to enrich the learning experience and, and be more inclusive. The teachers can be more inclusive. Well, thank you all for joining me today. Thank you for having thank us. for having us. Thanks, Ava. And for further information on this topic, you can find the article on the Mathematics Teacher Educator website. This has been your host, Ava Thenheiser. Thank you for listening and goodbye.